Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Today we're talking about technology and the MFT, technology influencing the way we deliver systemic therapy and technology influencing the presenting problems our couples and families come in with. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the role of social media. I'm talking about online infidelity. I'm talking about the way MFTs will deliver services in the future. Things like telehealth. Who better to talk to that with us today than Dr. Kat Hartline. Dr. Kat Hartline is a professor in couple and family therapy in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, UNLV. She received her master's degree in marriage and family therapy from Purdue Calumet and her doctorate in human development with a specialization in MFT from Virginia Tech. Across her academic career, she's published over 75 articles, 8 books, and 50 book chapters. She's co-edited a book on interventions in couples' treatments, interventions for clients with health concerns, and a book about which she's going to talk a little bit about today, Infidelity. Recently, Dr. Hartline published the second editions of Systemic Sex Therapy and a Clinician's Guide to Systemic Sex Therapy. These two books are used in over 20 couple and family therapy training programs around the U.S. Dr. Hartline has uh, produced the first multi-theoretical model dealing with the role of technology in couple and family life, published in her book, The Couple and Family Technology Framework. It's an excellent read. She's won numerous awards, including both research and teaching awards, including a prestigious Fulbright Core Scholar Award, which she'll talk a little bit about today. She's featured numerous AMFT conferences and a frequent contributor to Family Therapy Magazine. Please welcome to the show a friend and colleague, Dr. Kat Hartline. Okay, so happy to be joined uh, by Dr. Kat Hartline at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she is here to talk about all things technology, both how it applies to the direct practice of couple and family therapy, but also uh, running a co-empty training program, how it applies to training uh, next generation of MFT. So I think, first of all, wonderful to have you here. Thank it's you. good to see you again face to face. What do you think are the emerging technologies that every MFT really has to be up to date on as it pertains to their clinical work? So I think there are a couple different avenues of technology usage that 
often get confused. So I'm going to try to clarify them with this question. And maybe as we go through, I can kind of clarify, continue to clarify. So the first piece is the type of technology that the client is bringing in, right? So clients might be wearing um, watches, they might be bringing in recording devices, and that's becoming, I think, a pretty prominent thing in my practice. So we as a clinician, as clinicians have to be aware that our clients might be recording us, they might be recording other people and not telling other people, right? Um, so I think that becomes a really important piece of practice. We you have, have, you have a story about that where uh, in a context of either individual or couple or family therapy, uh, somebody was recording um, this session without your knowledge? Uh, I'm not sure that I do. I hope I don't. I hope I don't is my question, but I will tell you that I had a family about two months ago and I was meeting with the parents to go over the treatment plan. The dad did not like the treatment plan because he was a narcissist and you know, why would he like that treatment plan? And he said in that moment that he had the thought had occurred to him before to be recording sessions that we've been having to use in court against this ex. And he blurted it out like that, that he had just had this thought and we're lucky he didn't do it. And I sat there thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how do I know he didn't? So it really became in that moment, I became much more sensitive to it. It's, it's also how they do it. So I've had this couple and they really do not fight well. And they said, well, I'm going to start recording. And the recording in the context of their previous therapist had been to process a fight and re sure. repair, but, oh, yeah. but only when this, with the other person's knowledge. So this, this one client, um, the husband was recording the wife without her knowledge, which you can imagine uh, led to some big, big issues. So yeah, how, how people use the technology they have. And I was just thinking, looking at my uh, Apple Watcher, yeah, you can record uh, without even having your phone out. Absolutely. Right. A client can just tap their tap their wristwatch. You think they're checking the time, but maybe they've hit the record button. Yeah. And that is, that's significant. Uh, another piece t for, from the direct practice angle is we have to be better as a field at understanding what telemental health is and actually starting to do it and develop some core competencies and regulations around it, much more than we have done, I think, up to this point. Other disciplines are quickly outpacing us in terms of how they're developing their competencies and how they're regulating it. And I'd really like to see the profession start to do that better because I think that is going to be absolutely the future of where our practice is going to go. That's how we're going to reach people in rural areas. It's how we're going to continue to connect with our clients who have to travel. So it becomes really important to understand how to do telemental health and probably start that training while we're in our grad programs. Yeah, and being a director of a grad program, what, um, what do you think about that as far as what that looks like as far as a kind of organized, uh, operationalized training? What would that look like in the context of our MF, classic MFT training program? Actually, the, when I think about that type of training, I think about IPE, interprofessional education. I think that we can, we have a lot to gain by pulling together different disciplines and having maybe workshops where all disciplines, not just MFTs, are participating in it. I think that the, the type of treatment that's offered via telemental health in terms of the competencies, you're thinking about how to set up your clinical practice environment, 
which is something that we can do not just being an MFT, but also in other disciplines. You have to attend to that. We have to know what apps are going to be helpful for our clients. We have to know what to do in terms of um, triaging our clients' problems and giving assessments, right? Those are things that can all be managed in an interprofessional way. So one of the papers that we um, have written and is in review at this point is how to train people in an interprofessional educational way these telemental health competencies and how to use telemental health. Yeah, and I think we could we could have a whole show on that. We could, and uh, we might yeah, now. Yeah, see, yeah. <laughs> what do you think are the top presenting problems that uh, you see arise with couples and families because of technology? Uh, well, I'll start with the with the family piece first. the The main issue I see with families in their young people is a level of apathy around pretty much anything, right, unless it involves their phone. Uh, parents are having some real challenges disciplining because what I hear time and time again is, well, the only thing my kid cares about is the phone. Now that I've taken away the phone, nothing has changed and I have nothing else to take away. And so we're, as I think clinicians, having to really work harder to be able to help parents figure out what more they can do in terms of um, appropriate discipline and appropriate rewards that are not necessarily tied to a phone and the presence of a phone. Um, the other thing that I see with families is there's a lot of fragmentation. So I'm working with a family um, back in, in Las Vegas in my practice and the when you talk to the daughter and you ask her how her relationship is with her brother, she says, well, it used to be really good, but all he does is sit around and play video games. Okay, so I've asked the parents, that's exactly what's happening. They say that the daughter stays in, their, in her room upstairs, locked, locked door, doing things online with the world, and their son watches video games and plays video games all day long, and the parents are traveling, right? So I told the parents that I felt like there was a real sense of fragmentation in the family and that they weren't this cohesive unit. And so that's another thing that I'm seeing. When everybody's staring at a screen, then they're not interacting with each other. So there have to be ways to be more balanced about our technology usage and help parents to know that they can look at a kid and say, hey, it's dinner time, put down the phone. And that would... Uh also preclude that the parent would have to do the same thing. It's not, it's kind of like a practice what I preach type of thing and many families leading to this fragmentation. I mean, the, the kids are doing it, the parents are doing it and their, their, their style of communication is completely altered because of uh, smartphones and, and technology and things like that. How do you work with a, because a lot of people who will listen to this contest will be either therapists in training or uh, people that are professionally young, how do you work with a parent uh, that may also have the same problem? And the teenager will tell you, well, hey, why should I do it? Because it's the same rules don't apply to my parents, so why should I do it? They absolutely do. It's a good question. So, And you're absolutely right about the way that kids model their parents' behavior. There's actually an entire study that looks at a parents' problematic internet usage. And sure enough, when, pro when parents have that problematic usage and can't manage it, their kids display the same kinds of things when their kids get the phone. So one of the things you have to do is really get parents to look at their motivation. What's going on that's causing the parent to sort of check out, right, and, and reach for their phone? or what's motivating them to let the kid kind of do their own thing on the phone because then what the parent gets what i've heard parents say i get peace and quiet you know i get to get work done great well, and all those things are wonderful but then you have an agenda 
for your kid also using the phone, which maybe isn't the best. So our, so part of what I do in my work is I try to help the parents identify what their motivation is for kind of allowing the kid to use the phone the way that that is, and then treat that problem within the parent rather than sort of making making them just put have the kid put the phone down, right, and then not addressing what the cause of that is. All right, so on a family level, we have issues around the fragmentation in the cell phones. Mm-hmm. And tell me on a couple level, uh, clinically, what you're Infidelity, seeing. Infidelity, that's the most common one that I see. And it's getting really tricky in terms of the management of it. Um, because like, of how do people define uh, on, online infidelity. That's one part of it. Yeah, that's one part of it. Um, how do you define it first? Let's start with that. I start pretty pretty broadly. I say that it there's a breach in the couple's relationship that feels like betrayal, whatever that is. When you have people who are cheating online, one person usually says, well, you cheated on me, and the other person says, no, no, I never touched that person, or you're misinterpreting the messages, or we don't talk that often. There's a, there's a lot of kind of plausible deniability because of the type of messages that are exchanged and the way that you can delete stuff, right? Can't really prove anything in some cases. So the definition becomes a huge problem because if, as a clinician, I align with the one person that says, no, no, you betrayed your partner, then I'm, then I'm alienating the person who looks like they were doing the cheating or whatever. If I align with the partner who's cheated and said, well, now you can't really tell, you don't have any evidence, now I've alienated the person who came into treatment. So one of the first things I do is try to just get away from the specific definition of what each people thinks cheating was, back up and say, can we all agree that whatever happened here, your partner felt betrayed as a consequence? It's a problem for the couple, whether you think it's infidelity or not, it's a problem. Right, whatever you call it, you're your partner's crying in my office. Can we agree that that's a problem? Yes. Then once I get their agreement, now I can start going through with the treatment process. But you can't proceed with that process until you have that agreement that something happened and we're in here for a reason. Um, The other thing that's uh, challenging about infidelity is the inability for people to really be able to trust again. So we just completed a study that talked, where we asked people who had been cheated on and that cheating was facilitated by technology, um, what their recovery was like. And so we did a couple different focus groups. We ended up having, I think, 11 or 12 people in these focus groups. And not one of those relationships lasted, not one. And what it really came down to- Were the cohabitating couples, married married, married Uh, couples? Married, dating, and cohabitating. Um, and it really came down to the fact that after things were discovered, that there was some confrontation, there was some discussion, they tried to rehabilitate the relationship, but because of the inability to develop trust again, in, in a large part due to some of the functions of the internet, new media, and the ability to just delete, they were never really able to move past and trust that person again, and all of those relationships terminated. Right, So we as clinicians have to really start doing different things in terms of working with infidelity because the way in which people recover from it, if they recover, is very different because of the qualities of the internet. Very different. Yeah, because as you said, the ease of access, it's always there. Uh, the plausible deniability mm-hmm. um, that makes it very interesting. And you also, you've kind of hit on this and we'll kind of jump back and forth with, between the clinical and the research because you are not only a, you're a true scientist practitioner in that your clinical work has informed your research and you are in, in our world of AAMFT, uh, the, the foremost and leading researcher in, in these areas of couples and technology, especially on fi- online infidelity. What has your research taught you uh, and how has it informed your clinical work? 
I think one of the things my research has taught me is that there is a real difference between online and offline infidelity. Good. Just explain that to us because I think people think it's all the same, but no, there's a there's a special flavor when we're talking about There that. is. I used to think it was the same. I did. When I first started studying it years ago and first started working with couples, it's the same thing. Betrayal's betrayal and you sort of have to recover and go through a process, right? Um, but it is very different. So first, I think one of the differences is, as we talked about the definitions, when there's some kind of offline infidelity and people are discovered, it's really very hard to say those things weren't happening, right? In a world of technology, easier to deny, deny, deny. Delete. Mm -hmm, that's it. A second way it's different is the presence of more emotional affairs, more emotional infidelity. Um, the thing about the internet is because when we are communicating on it, we have to do a lot more description. You can't really see the person, right? You gotta, people can't see me on this podcast, right? Right. Thank goodness I'm wearing a t-shirt, I'm not even dressed up. <laughs> I can't see my bias. We're, we're gonna so. put a beautiful picture of you on the webpage. <laughs> Perfect. Great. So I would have to describe to you, this is what I'm wearing and my hair is curled and this and this and I'm feeling this way and I'm feeling happy or sad or whatever. That's a lot of self-disclosure, right? And so these relationships start much more quickly and you feel much more connected to someone online in a shorter period of time than you would if you were just talking to that person face to face. So these relationships can be really seductive and they can be, um, they can foster a great sense of commitment quicker than you would like. So that's another way that where they're really different. You get this emotional connection and there's more emotional infidelity than I think in the past. Um, another main difference is the absence of evidence versus evidence of absence. So one of the things that trips up couples, and I haven't had these conversations with those who, who have engaged in offline infidelity as much as I've had with people who foster it online, is the person who's been betrayed knows that the person who uh, they think has betrayed them has the ability to delete messages, um, not put on their GPS, have, not know where they are, right? I mean, there's a million ways that they can say, I'm not doing anything, look, I'm faithful to you, right? So the, for They can them, justify it in their mind that it's this extension of their fantasy life or uh, uh, not, not the real world, they're compartmentalized. Yes. Absolutely, very much, you have, absolutely have the ability to compartmentalize, and that's part of what we talk about in terms of accommodation. You can accommodate what you want to do in, in your real life, but you can't do in an offline way. So the person who has been betrayed is basically saying, no, no, um, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? It's this, this what, John Locke, I think, 200 years ago, was 300 years talking about that type of dilemma, ad ignoratum is what it's called. Whereas the person who's been accused of cheating or participating in these relationships is going, no, 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 look, like absence of evidence is evidence of absence. So the couple's really coming from two very, very different philosophical positions. And if you don't resolve that philosophical positioning, that couple's never gonna make it. That person who's been betrayed is never going to believe me or her partner or his partner that the cheating has stopped, right? Because they are a firm believer that anything can be hidden and I will never recover. And that's, I think, another main difference between the online and offline infidelity. In, in your experience and in your data, do you think there's certain typologies, people who will only engage like repeat offenders in, in online transgressions or uh, a cheater is equally you know, likely to have face-to-face -face and online experiences? 
That's a good question. Um, I think that uh, people who have difficulty managing their anxiety are people who are going to probably connect with others online more, right? People who, those are people who, when they talk, to get, talk together with others, they feel better and they don't recognize that when they're talking to others more frequently to manage their anxiety about a certain relationship that it's actually drawing them closer. They don't sort of understand that level of self-disclosure becomes really powerful and really does connect you well to other people. So I think people who don't manage their anxiety have a tendency for more of the online stuff. Um, as far as the offline infidelity, I've had a number of cases where that person has been engaging in offline infidelity until they got caught and then they stopped once they understood how much it harmed their partner. So I think with the online infidelity, there might be a thought that if I'm, if I'm engaging in some of these activities with somebody online, because it's not necessarily real, it's not going to have an impact on my partner. So that may be why some of those relationships persist as well, where some of the offline relationships, um, they tend to stop after they've gotten caught, or at least that's what they tell me in therapy. Maybe when, when you're repairing uh, from infidelity, the idea of giving, if you're the injured partner, the person that was cheated on and the participating partner who did the cheating, the idea of the participating partner being completely transparent, giving the injured partner access, mm -hmm. their passwords, sure. their technology, things like that. How, how do you find uh, the repair process with technology complicating things? Mm -hmm. how, how, do you, how do you find the repair process working with these couples as far as transparency around usage of technology? Even stuff we have to use every day, the computer, mm -hmm. the phone, these things take a completely different meaning to somebody that has uh, been injured in that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, they do. Every time you see one of those things, it becomes a trigger. Right, which is every time you see your partner checking their work email, that's a huge trigger, right? So that can be really challenging. One of the things as far as transparency that a lot of couples will ask for, a lot of the partners who've been injured will ask for is the access, and that's fine. And I, I tell them like, listen, you know, I sort of get it. Um, we're in a stage of crisis management and you need to know that you need to grab onto something to help move trust forward. So, and I understand that you're not the person who's maybe been participating. I know you're not necessarily happy about this. However, you have to recognize that there's a consequence to sort of what's happened and your partner really is looking for something to grab onto to say things are gonna be okay. That's fine. If we want to do crisis management for a few months, cool. But I will tell that the person who's been injured at the time, I'll say, listen, this is not something that is going to be maintained in your relationship because I believe it sets up a totally messed up power dynamic. I don't want to be in a relationship where someone can't trust me and has to check my email. Like, that's ridiculous. Right. It's a temporary to stabilize the system. That's it. Right. Yeah. So, and I say to both of them, like, so this is only going to last a couple months. And then at the end of a few months, we're going to come back and we're going to revisit this. And if you don't want to revisit it, you know, if, if the person who has the, who has been injured doesn't want to revisit it, doesn't want to give up the power, we've got a problem then. Now we have to work on something different. So I'm pretty clear with my couples that I understand it. There's a there's a time and a place for that, but that does not mean that the way that's the way your relationship is going to be dictated because I don't think that's healthy. What about the reverse of that? What what do you do with initially a couple comes in and they want to repair, but the participating partner is not so willing to give access to the injured partner, to their technology, to their passwords. And maybe that was, again, an online infidelity would cause affair. What about a reluctant 
partner that in one hand says they want to fix it, but another hand is not willing to do what it mm -hmm. takes probably to build that trust mm -hmm. back. So th that's a good question. There are a couple of questions I would ask. First of all, is that request reasonable? For example, let's assume that we have a therapist in the office who's been participating in infidelity. It probably is not appropriate for the person who's been injured to have access just for confidentiality reasons. You know, it's absolutely not a great idea. So is the request reasonable? Number two, what are the other strategies then that the person who is participating is willing to maybe develop or think about that would help the other partner feel like trust was being built without having that put into place and let's try those for a few weeks right we can try that and if, and if it doesn't resolve maybe we can come back together and revisit this and what are we going to do so i think that becomes a negotiation but the participating partner has to be able to offer something instead of just sitting at that end of the table and saying no no i'm not doing those things right because then that tells me a whole lot more about how this is going to go yeah. You know, this is one of your passions, and I think people in the field know you for your work with um, sex and the integration of kind of sex therapy and MFT and also technology. And this is kind of what we've been talking about the last couple of minutes on online infidelity kind of blends both of that. Talk, I always ask our, our guests the, the story of uh, their origin story, so to speak. How did they get into MFT? Uh, but then specifically, how did they start developing their expertise in this case for you in, in sex and technology i was in my psychology uh, bachelor's program in my undergrad and i had gotten back a number of papers in my english class all at once the teacher graded everything we wrote and gave it back as a packet and I'm, so i'm walking back to my dorm and i'm going through all of the papers and i realize every single paper has to do with couples divorcing or kids and adhd and i thought to myself well, there must be something here. <laughs> so, so I started thinking, all right, maybe I need a graduate career. And uh, I started looking at couple and family therapy. And back at the time, it wasn't couple and family therapy. It was marriage, right? So I went through the Peterson's Guide. I went through the C's. I didn't see anything about couples and families. So I didn't get past the C's. I closed the book. <laughs> so a year later, so I'm working in a children's home in uh, Illinois Masonic Children's Home in Chicago, Illinois. And there were some therapists there on staff. I was a house parent. I was living in a house as a 22-year-old. I had nine boys living in the house, ages 5 through 12. Um, and I was their parent. And uh, these were kids who had lost... Um, their parents retained custody, but the state had guardianship because of some sort of trouble their parents got into. So this was the group of kids I had. Um, and all the stuff that would go on in, in this home, I would talk to the therapists on staff, and I would talk to my supervisors, and I say, listen, I don't think the timeout is working. I don't think this is working, you know, the way that we do it here in the house. And the my boss said to me, he's like, well, that's great, but if you want to change anything, you need to go be a therapist because you're a house parent, you're not a therapist, so you can't change those things. And I thought, well, darn it, I'm getting that Peter guide again so <laughs> I opened up the book again this time I went past the C's and I found marriage and family therapy and that that's it and started applying for programs I know that about you now. Yeah. And, that, and that's how you that's how you winded up at Purdue that's how, how I wound up at Purdue mm -hmm. yes and then uh, you just talk about the evolution into what you're doing now and also again you have this unique um, presentation of the true scientist practitioner one foot in academia and yeah. one foot in in direct practice and and um, promoting the profession. So tell me how you got interested in studying what you're studying. 
well, your students are going to love this or any student that listens to this. I actually really, totally, absolutely fell in love with Bowen Family Systems Theory mm-hmm. as a master's student. Yeah, and I, th- I think most, uh, to cut you off, most, uh, get it cut off, uh, to uh, <laughs> most uh, family therapists like Bowen Theory because they think of their own family of origin. And when you're learning and before you actually start applying it, I mean, these are universal principles that just fit, even though he had no empirical basis for anything. I think people differentiation might be one of the most innate greatest uh, theories of all time but I think it Bowen theory speaks to a lot of people myself included because yeah. you put put that through a lens so that's how you start that yes and uh, as I was thinking about um, doing my thesis I was trying to figure out how do I test Bowen family systems theory and there were a couple books at the time like David Moultrip's book um, husband wives and lovers the emotional system of an affair that talks about applying Bowen family systems theory to an affair there were a couple other pieces Ed Freeman wrote another piece that talked about how anxiety management was related to infidelity and differentiation was a piece of that. So I thought infidelity was a perfect way to try to measure people's level of differentiation. So that is how I got started in infidelity work. Um, as I moved on to my doc program, I had this body of knowledge in infidelity. The belief, hold on, so with the belief that someone, a lowly differentiated person, uh, who gets their reflected sense of self through somebody else or through constant validation, if they don't get it, they're going to go get it from their partner, they're going to go and get it from someone else. I was really thinking about it as anxiety management. So people who have lower levels of differentiation can't manage their anxiety well, so they seek out a third person to do that. As Bowen talked about, triangles are natural, triangulation is a problem, right? And so as people are trying to stabilize that anxiety, they reach out to that to maybe a third person to function as that triangle, but end up sort of relying on them too hard. So that's essentially what I was what I was measuring in my in my thesis. So um, so then I went to Virginia Tech and I had this body of knowledge about infidelity and and I um, was really interested in the topic of internet infidelity. My husband's a software engineer, and so I was seeing a lot of what was going on with video gaming and World of Warcraft wives and all you know this new phenomenon. This is the origin of online kind of gaming uh-huh. and things like that. Yes. Exactly. So we're talking in the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it occurred to me that on those chat functions, people are getting together and they're talking. And I started to hear anecdotal stories about people divorcing because they were found cheating online. And so I thought, well, I've got this body of knowledge about infidelity. And so now I'm going to just sort of apply what we're learning about online technologies and see if that's going to make a difference in the way that practitioners are treating things or the way that um, the, the public is responding to their relationships. And so that's how I got into the internet infidelity piece. Um, And then when I got this job at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the chair at the time, Dr. Gerald Weeks, was um, in the area of sex therapy and also did a lot of work with infidelity. He had just recently, at that time, put out a book called Treating Infidelity. So we had a lot of good conversations. And Terry Trepper, who was one of my mentors at Purdue, reached out to me in my first couple years at um, UNLV and said, hey, listen, we're doing some sex therapy books and I'd like you to sort of take the lead as the editor on this book. And I said, that would be great. And I knew that Gerald could really mentor me in this process. And so I invited uh, Gerald Weeks to to co-edit those books with me. And that's how I really learned about his model and his style of doing sex therapy. And the cool thing also, you've recently been awarded a Fulbright. I have! uh, This will be news uh, for me too, because I haven't asked you about it. Talk talk to us about that and how that fits into your research agenda. It fits in so beautifully. Um, I've been so grateful to have been awarded that Fulbright. I know it's a highly competitive uh, endeavor, and I was just so grateful to be able to have the opportunity to sort of share my work overseas. What I proposed for the project 
is a cross-cultural understanding of technology and personal relationships. I have been watching some of the news in Europe and sort of have a sense that the way that they manage their technology is probably more respectful of privacy than we do it here. Um, so I'm a little bit curious about what that looks like in terms of how they use their technology, what sort of privacy standards they're adhering to, whether it's the same or different. I just, I just don't know. So that is what I propose in the project. I'm also going to be teaching two courses when I'm over there. Where are you going? Uh, oh yes, yeah. University yeah. of Salzburg. Oh wow. In Salzburg, Austria. So I will be there um, for about five months. So I'm looking forward to the trip. Um, and so these two courses. Courses. One is going to be an undergraduate, one is going to be a graduate class. The undergraduate class is on technology and relationships and it's going to feature um, a lot of the up and coming information we have um, from a new book that we have coming out. And we, I will also be teaching a class called Modern Sexology, which is about brain, biology, and behavior, and really talking about this biopsychosocial approach to sexuality and sex therapy, which is generally what our sex therapy books are about. That's, uh, that's awesome. What do you think, as far as emerging technologies, you know, you can't go with, that therapists have to be aware of? Like, I'm thinking of things like Tinder, Bumble, these things that kind of cross in that can can be useful in some settings and in other settings can, can backfire. What, what are the emerging technologies uh, that... Uh, MFTs that are going to work with couples and families sh should know about? I think that there are a number of dating apps, as you mentioned. You mentioned some of the more hookup apps, but there are also kind of dating apps that using them now either because they're free or whatever people are using them more as dating apps now even though the original intention was hookup apps do you find it that yes. way yes yeah, absolutely and i think clinicians need to know about that because i think it speaks to a client's sense of control or their sense that they're out of control um one of the things that we often think when we're using technologies that we're in control of it right so we're putting in certain things in our search histories to draw certain things to us or if we're on dating sites or dating apps we're checkmarking certain boxes and that will sort of gatekeep for us and so that doesn't bring us people that we don't think we want right so that can be really problematic because we actually don't have a sense of control as far as technology goes because we know that people can post things that are not accurate uh, they can post pictures that aren't accurate they can say certain things about themselves that are not accurate they're they're really anonymous until you actually connect with them and meet with them so for me as a clinician, I'm always curious about what sorts of apps that the clients are using and how they're using it because it gives me an idea of whether they feel like they have a sense of control about their, their world, a realistic sense of control, or whether they are they have rather an unrealistic sense of what they can control, what's going on. And that helps me sort of direct the action in terms of what's happening in the room. A second thing is you want to be checking about frequency of what's being used and circumstance. So I've got a client who every time that he runs out of Wellbutrin, he all of a sudden hits all these dating apps as a way to manage. It's a cycle. Anxiety. That's it, that's a cycle. So we have to, just because these things are accessible and we're using them all the time, there are still patterns around our usage. So I think as far as these emerging technologies go, asking clients, what did you download this week, if anything? Did you, did you download any new apps? Why did you download the apps? Do you end up using that app, right? We can ask someone to download Headspace all we want, but if they're not using it, it doesn't really matter, okay? So really be asking about what it is that they're accessing and who they're accessing on these sites. Do you think um, that students uh, that we're training now, many of our millennials or even younger, they're kind of like digital natives, so it's kind of built in to the way they relate, relate, relate the way they communicate. Uh, do you think that 
is an advantage as far as kind of joining and working with this couples or what do you think needs to be done to kind of educate the MFTs tomorrow about their own uses of the technology that impact their you know their self a therapist and, and their their views on technology and how they they work with clients I think it's a good question it's both positive and can have drawbacks. It's positive in the sense that technology allows us to be super responsive. And a lot of the theories about um, social connection and social communication back in the 70s tell us that the more responsive you are, the more connected someone feels to you and the more supported they feel. Awesome, cool. So if you as a therapist can use your phone to support a client by being responsive, because you can be, right, super accessible, that's a great thing. The thing that becomes challenging is then establishing a boundary around it, right? Just because people are accessible all the time doesn't mean that they should be, right? So you've got to make sure that as a clinician, not only are you responsive to your clients, but that you've had conversations about what your boundaries are going to be. Clients don't necessarily know that you are a professional and that you have these boundaries set up. They might expect that just because they have your cell phone number, they can text you any hour of the day, right? And do they make some meaning if you don't text them back? Do you make that explicit um, in your opening meetings with clients about your rules around technology? I do. I have a form that they fill out. I have a form that they sign about the contact and we talk about that. I think many clinicians probably need to start doing that. That has to be something that's a mandatory part of practice. I agree with you. Or they, most clinicians wait till a problem comes up right. or something like that. And then it's much easier to have that conversation at the beginning. Right. Um, Instead of what, having client ticked off that, the, that you ignore them. What are the types know? of things you put in that opening paperwork around texting, around social media? Tell us how you um, kind of go over that with clients. I let clients know that first of all, it's not HIPAA compliant. Um, so straight up, you know, if you're going to be texting or email, number one, this is part of your record. So if you send me photographs, if you send me screenshots, that becomes part of your record. Number two, it's not HIPAA compliant. Uh, email is not HIPAA compliant. So just be aware of those. I'm not going to reach out and talk to you in that manner. And if you choose to reach out and talk to me, just recognize that you're kind of violating your own confidence. If you're cool with that, cool. Um, and then I have them sign a form, you know, to this effect. Uh, other things that we talk about are my work hours right so here are the times when I'm available but there are times where if I don't get back to you it doesn't mean that I don't care it means that I'm either with a client or I'm with my family and I will return your call or return your text messages the next day we also talk about how to handle emergencies there was one instance where I woke up and found a text from one of my teenage clients and it was a photograph of the razor blade lines that he made in the middle of the night right that is not the time for that, right? So what is the mechanism for an emergency and how, and how do we use text, email, and phone calls and what are gonna be their purposes? That's also another thing you should be actually talking with clients about in practice as well. So we as clinicians have to think about when text is used, when email is used, and when a phone call is used and having that conversation with a client. Clients too have to recognize when they use text, email, and phone with each other. So we just finished collecting data on this as well. Um, yeah, so we've got so people are generally using text if they know that their partner might be busy, if they are trying to give their partner some space to be able to respond, if it's something quick, if they're trying to arrange a date or a time to talk, um, that's when they're using text. They're using phones if they're a, if they want to be able to multitask and they don't want their partner to see that they're necessarily multitasking. They use video calling when they need some level of support or need to have kind of a, a, an emotional conversation. And they use email for like business documents and transactions, right? So part of what we teach 
couples is when you need support, you need synchronous methods of communication. So it's probably going to be best then to have phone or video. And if you're looking to solve a problem, actually using email to do it because you have an ability to be able to slow down and kind of get your thoughts. But the couple has to have an agreement that they're going to respond in that way and that emails are not going to go unanswered. Because text is too immediate. The email email uh, has a different uh, flavor to it. I think that's good being intentional very early on in, in couples work. What have you learned? We speak of millennial students and kind of digital natives. What have you learned from your students that has impacted um, both your research and your clinical work? I've actually learned a whole lot more about the positives of technology. I have learned that there are ways to be really efficient, both from kind of a business perspective, but also relationally. So they've taught me more about apps that are available to accomplish certain things that I wasn't even aware of. One of the things that comes to mind is we were trying to do an observational study looking at how people people are using phones and in meetings and classrooms and things like that. And we ultimately weren't able to do the study, but um, but one of the things that came up was the students mentioned, oh, well, people could check their email through their watches as well. And it was something I hadn't even thought about, right? My watch has a dial and it spins around. It never even occurred to me that that is the, the primary mode. So I think students are really good about presenting what is on the forefront and helping me understand ways that technology could really be good for couples when I tend to hit the pathology a little bit more since that has been a a little bit more of what I've studied. Yeah. I'm also thinking in doing this as technology to practice within your scope of competence, it is very important to stay up to date on all these things. Like you've brought up many things that it's not as simple as just saying, oh, I want to start using technology in my work. I want to start doing online therapy or telehealth. This is something that really takes a lot of homework before you start doing this type of work. Um, how do you suggest if you're listening to this as, as we begin to, to wrap up? If, if I don't, if I'm interested in what you've talked about, but I'm out of date, I don't know about these things and I'm no longer in a graduate program like UNLV that's going to teach me all this stuff, where, where do I learn this stuff? I would go a couple places. Uh, first, I would go to the Coalition for Technology and Behavioral Science. So it's an organization that is dedicated to helping people get connected with trainings, webinars, workshops, readings, things to help them understand how to get started in this practice. Um, another one would be the Zur Institute. They also provide a lot of trainings around telemental health. Um, finally, you could look at um, NBCC, which which has quite a few webinars for clinicians who are looking to sort of supplement their skills and engage in a telemental health. And then finally, anybody can just reach out to me and I can help you get connected to some of those resources. Yeah, tell, everybody the best way, tell everybody the best, best way. Best way to get a hold of me is through email at Catherine, K-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E dot H-E-R-T-L-E-I-N at U-N-L-V dot E-D-U. Great, and we'll, we'll put that in the, in the, the link. Uh, any other tips or parting words of wisdom you you may have um, for people listening to this? And also your hope, uh, we revisit this a couple years down the, the road. Where is your hope we move as a field and as an organization, the AAMFT, around uh, integrating technology in, into our work? I hope that we have moved a couple directions professionally. One of them is adopting some of the core competencies that we've developed for telemental health to be applied to couple and family therapy as a profession. The second thing I hope is that the Commission on Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education actually starts putting some of the uh, curriculum 
information for telemental health in some of the standards and at least asking programs to navigate how they're going to start teaching or training students in those skills. And then I, what I hope is to be able to really move towards more, I think, integration interprofessionally. I think there's a lot we can learn from some of the organizations who've already made some steps to move toward telemental health, and I think we need to do a better job of connecting with those organizations. Who do you look to those organizations? Who do you look up to? Who, who is a good example of collaborating in that way or that MFTs should know about other organizations? Um, I, I think actually the Counseling Association, the ACA, does a really good job. I think um, the American Psychiatric Association um, does a really good job as well. I think those they have some pretty good documents to be able to start us working through that process. And the other thing that I hope is that MFTs sort of drop their fear around technology. One of the things that we know is MFTs are afraid that the te telemental health is going to disrupt the joining process. We want to be around people. We want to be connected to people. And, and I get that. But the clients actually will tell you that they feel just as joined and in some ways feel like they can say even more and be even more vulnerable because the therapist isn't sitting right there in front of them. So I would really like us to sort of reduce our fear around this machine that's sitting in between you and I and just be able to start to relate to each other through the machine and just use it as a tool. My children have never known a life without FaceTime. So sure. that's how we communicate anyway. So that's it. Yeah. blend it into the work we do as, as a profession, as marriage and family therapy. Yeah, there, there, are, there are quite a few people who, you know, I really um, look up to, I think have done similar things in this field. Like when I think about um, like Angela Lampson and Jennifer Hodgson or Carmen Newton Martin or, um, you know, even Mark Butler, a lot of his work. Like they, they've taken a lot of things that were sort of brand new to the field and sort of been like, okay, let's sort of look at this in a different way. You know, Sue Johnson as well. Like, you know, let's look at this in a different way and really kept banging the drum until everybody sort of got behind them. And that's what I kind of am hoping for with regard to technology. Like I've been banging this drum trying to say as a profession, let's, let's get on board here. I can help you. I can help you. Right. Let's go. So. Wonderful, and I, I hope you will come back after your, your experience abroad and tell us about the Fulbright experience, both what you learned about a different culture and where that leads your, your work next. So wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. So brings to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. I learned a lot there. If you want to hear more from Kat, you need some CEUs and you want to use technology, you can go to Tenio. Tenio is the online provider, a warehouse of all the latest and greatest in systemic therapy knowledge. Go to amft.org under the tab Enhanced Knowledge. Go to Online Education and Training. Then you'll see Tenio. You can search the various offerings. You can put in search for Cat Heartline and you can get some great CEU offerings by her, including artificial intelligence and the future of MFT. And you can find out more about what we were talking about today about the ethics. Everybody needs ethics CEUs, the ethics and supervisee techno technology uses. Uh, and that's where you'll hear the use of social media is increasing at an exponential rate. And the supervisors and MFT programs and clinical facilities have to address appropriate and professional use of technology and social media. It's a deeper dive into what we were talking about today on the podcast. Again, Tenio, your one-stop shop for everything MFT continuing education related. So if you want to uh, meet us face-to-face -face, coming up in March, we are on about a little over a month away from the 2020 Leadership Symposium in beautiful and warm Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, AMFT's Leadership Symposium is a great opportunity to meet like-minded MFTs 
who can influence your career and provide connections to propel you towards the next step in your career. Uh, this 2020 symposium is going to design to nurture leadership skills and development uh, for all systemic therapists who are passionate about advancing the profession of MFT, specifically ta tailored toward emerging leaders who want to develop their skills and established leaders who may be looking to diversify or expand their. You're going to see profiles of unique career paths and challenges overcome by many MFTs. Uh, you're going to increase your understanding of the association and group governance. And there's lots of peer-to-peer -peer networking and interactive workshops. I'll be there actually talking about uh, failure, uh, leadership's greatest lesson. Uh, if you want to hear me talk about my greatest failures, uh, I'll be talking uh, on March 13th, Friday the 13th. But you can go to uh, networks.amft.org slash leadership symposium and find out everything you need to know lots of great offerings by amft whether it's virtually or face to face as always we love hearing from you your feedback influences both topics and guests on our show and i can't thank you enough for the supportive feedback we've gotten lately here in our second season on the podcast you can follow us on twitter at the amft I'm at Dr. Eli Live, and always drop us a line, either at communications at amft.org or to me direct at info at elikaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M. Until next time, my friends, stay systemic.